the very first time I was here, I fell in love with JFC, the culture of it, the values that they stand for here. My favorite thing about JFC is just the people, the people that are here, the people that I get to work with. It's like a family. We are so family-oriented all around our campuses. I find my relationships with JFC have deepened me as a human being and made me want to serve the Lord more and just to participate more in ministry. The community at JFC is of its own. It's just been a wonderful community for us to get involved in. It's all about relationships and that's something that just is irreplaceable in my life. Each campus is a little different. They develop their own family and their own way of doing things. It's one church, but all the different campuses kind of have like their different flavor. It's a smaller campus. Sometimes that's a little bit more uncomfortable, but once you get that, the relationships that are built there are second to none because that's not something that you would necessarily be able to do in a huge congregation. We stand for the same thing, so even though it's in different locations, our underlining values are the same. I know whatever campus they go to, it's the same product, and it's a good product. Going to this church and having the mentors that I've had has really just unlocked potential in my life. They really do want you here, and they want you to have that encounter with God. I very rarely go to a service where I don't walk out with something to chew on for a week. When you walk through the door, the tears start to flow because the Holy Spirit is in this place. I used to be a person that went to church because I was going to get something, and now I feel like I'll go to church to get something for sure, but also to give something. It just continues to amaze me how God's using me, who used to just be the bystander sitting in the back row, and now I can actually be somebody who I feel makes a difference. What I've discovered is that I'm a valuable part of the body, that I have a lot to give and that God can use me. Going to JSC helped me recover all the promises that God has said to me. The main way that my life has been impacted through this church is discovering my identity in Christ and pursuing what I'm called to do. Every week, God reminds me constantly that He has good things for me. It's just really cool to be a part of. So, uh, glad you're here, really glad I'm here, to be honest with you. Uh, <laughs> uh, if you don't know, I'll give you the update. I'm super nervous right now. Um, so two weeks ago, almost right at this moment, uh, at the Lakewood campus, I stepped onto the pulpit there and I had a heart attack. Um, no warning, no symptoms, um, no, um, no nothing. Um, wasn't even sure that's what was going on. I actually convinced myself it was indigestion, um, but it kept getting worse and worse. And um, as soon as I was done with my part, uh, I had Chris take me to the hospital, and then we argued on the way to the hospital in between breaths um, that I thought I could go home, and then I thought I need to go to the hospital, and then I thought I'd go home, and she finally just said, you need to go to the hospital, and got there, and um, they hooked me up to a machine, 
And I was telling the doctor, the cardiologist, I think it's just indigestion. He said, you're having a heart attack right now, John. Uh, Of course, scary words. They still choke me when I try to say them. Um, I can't imagine that that's what's happened to me, but that's what happened to me. Um, The report is simply this. Um, You know, if if you're American, over 40, you have some kind of plaque buildup in your arteries, quite honestly. And you might say, I don't think so, Pastor. Neither did I. Um, But that's that's the report that's out there. And the bottom line is, most of us live with it and never have any problem with it. And I had some plaque that tore, and it tears the artery, and that's what causes a heart attack. They went in and put a stint in. There was a smaller one they couldn't get to, and they're treating it with uh, blood thinners. Um, The good news is they expect me to make uh, 100% recovery from it. Uh, They need to make some changes in uh, lifestyle stuff, and I'm not exactly sure what that means right now. Um, My claim has always been God makes you the way he makes you, and, um, you know, you just go, go, go. That's just the way sort of it is. But um, then the other side of it is that, um, you know, life, life is pretty precious. And if you do get a second chance, you got to make the most of it. And... uh, The cardiologist told me one-third of the people that have what I had die on the spot. The other third wait too long and suffer irreversible heart damage. And then here's what he said, the last third are lucky like you. And um, I'll tell you the one, maybe I'll share more of this later. It's a little still overwhelming for us and we're just now two weeks. Um, But in the operating room, the cardiologist and then his assistant, right when things started really getting, getting scary, the assistant The assistant bent down and said, I'm one of your sheep. And said, you're going to be okay, Pastor. I got you. And uh, Chris thought it was an angel. um, (laughs) But he did come to our room a few days later. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, it it was a kiss from God. Sorry. Uh. So I don't know. I'm just shooting from the heart right now. Okay. Um, I know you need to count on your church. And I hope you feel with all sincerity that as long as you've been here, you're able to do that. I hope you really do feel like that. That your church is here and that your church is here to help you. I'm going to ask you, can I count on you right now? And what I mean by that simply is this. i got to get my life kind of together. And I don't know what it all means. I don't know how much I can teach right now. I know the cardiologist just told me only once a weekend right this second. And I don't know what the ups and downs of it are. Um, but just, I'll get it together. And just... Be here for me right now, too. Don't. Thanks. Okay, that's, yeah. So. And thank you. Thank you for all the well wishes, for all the people that reached out to us, for all the prayers, for sure. It really does make a difference. For all the care and for all the love. It's hard for me to receive that. I'm usually on the other end of it, giving. And I'm not a good receiving person, but I've been put in a position for two weeks where 
had to receive a lot of that. I'm thankful for the care and for the love, and just for the kind words, the cards, um, just for the outreach. It, it's, this is a good church. And I can say it from the other side of it now, having received the love and the care and the attention. And I appreciate what everybody's done for me and what everybody has, has, has said. And I don't know, I don't know, I don't know everything yet. I'm learning and I gotta, you know, I gotta go through this thing called uh, cardiac rehab, believe it or not, where I'm the youngest person by about 35 years. <laughs> and I'm dead serious in that. Um, the cardiologist said, you'll have the toughest time of anybody here because you won't believe this was supposed to happen to you. And I don't believe it was supposed to. I thought they'd walk in on Monday and said, we made a mistake and we need to take the stent back out. <laughs> but they don't. So um, I am committed to doing whatever they tell me to do and to being healthy in all parts of my life. And that's a process that's actually been going on. And if you've been here for a length of time, I actually talked about it last year. I had a warning from a doctor on some of these things. Um, and I've been trying to change my life radically, but now um, there's some more things that I need to do, and I'm going to do them. That's just the bottom line. I'm not cavalier or flipping about it. Um, not going to throw caution to the wind. I'm going to do what I'm told to do, and I'm going to uh, practice it. I think in some ways there might be some people inside of our churches at our campuses that I need to speak to about this too because the weird thing about it is it can just happen to you in the middle when everything's going really good and you just don't know it. So um, as it progresses and as I know more, I'll talk more. But I begged the cardiologist to let me teach this weekend and um, my sheer nagging um, <laughs> made him, maybe I'm not changing that much after all. But I am only going to teach one time. And I'm sitting down. How about that right there? So, all right. Um, grab your notes and let's, let's, let's just go. It, it's, it's good for me. I told my staff, they said, what do you need? And I said, I need to get through this weekend so that I can get my life back. So, um, look, we're going to talk about Jonah. I'm actually very excited to teach about this. Uh, for several months now, I've been preparing to teach about this, studying, looking. We've been talking about it as a staff, getting ready for it. In fact, I'll just tell you this right now. Um, it's really weird to sort of, we, we did our planning for the next uh, nine months, and I'm so excited about all the things that God's put in my heart. And part of this process is, you know, when, when you're going through something that suddenly the thin veil of how we live our lives, and that none of us are promised a breath, really. We, we think we are, but suddenly it can be taken away from you. And you're just faced with the reality that, hey, it, it could be over right now. And I... Compare that with feeling like God has given me so much to do and arguing with him on a table um, of like, God, I, this can't be my time. And I'll talk about that in a second and, and not feeling like it is, but I'm so excited about the things that we're going to do in this next year. And I just need to figure out how this all comes together now. But we're going to this weekend talk about Jonah. Let me give you a little bit of background. Whenever I read a book of the Bible, and this might serve you, uh, as you're, if, you, if you read it, if you study it, if you read it to learn and to, to learn how to apply it in your life, the first thing I do with every book is I ask myself, why is this in here? It's just a simple question. Why is this book in here? Some books are obvious. The book of Acts, it's in there because it's to give us a comparison of what the church is supposed to look like uh, when it started. Does that make sense right there? I mean, it's just an easy one. Uh, Romans is in there because it teaches us about God's grace. Ephesians is in there uh, because it talks about God's mercy and his plan for us. I mean, so when it comes to like the book of Jonah, I ask, why is this in here? What, what is, what's the lesson to be learned from this right here? 
Because it's kind of a funny book. You have a minor prophet who has a really strong word from God. And instead of it being one of those stories where he gets up and he goes and there's a miracle that happens with it, the guy's angry with God and he goes the opposite way. God finally has his way with him, but even when Jonah goes and he delivers God's message, he does it with anger in his heart. And I wonder if that message, the part of the reason it's in the Bible, maybe it's not just for people that sit to be taught. Maybe it's for the ones who teach that they're supposed to be seeing. You can actually have the word of the Lord, but if you teach it the wrong way, it doesn't help you. And I just wonder if there's some truth to that right there. Jonah was a minor prophet. Um, not very well known outside of this story about his life, and it's just one very small slice of Jonah's life. Uh, a lot of people, I think today, when it comes to this story, I think a lot of believers have trouble with, did this really happen? Is it an analogy? Is it an allegory? Pastor, what do you really think? Here, here's what I would say to you. Here's what Jesus referred to it in the book of Matthew. He said, as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days, so the Son of Man will be in the earth for three days before he's resurrected. So here would be my statement of credibility. If Jesus believed in it, so do I. Now, I realize not for everybody in the room would that be true. Maybe you're sitting here and you're like, I don't believe in Jesus, so why would I believe in what Jesus is? I get that, and I give you room to feel that way. But if you're a believer, it settles the argument for me. Even though I can't point and go, I don't know how God did it. Here's what I know. God can do it. That's what I believe. So I believe it was a literal story. I believe that there was a truth here. I believe that it's more, though, than just the power of God. I think there's a representation here that God wants us to see. And that's kind of where this series will go in the next couple of weekends. So whenever I do the first series, I try to be as broad and as wide as I can, to be as inviting, to kind of, kind of pull as many people as I can, and then get narrow as we go into the coming weeks. So here's what I want to do. I'm actually going to read to you the first chapter. It's only 17 verses. And I thought rather than only put three or four of them in here, I'll just read it to you because I want you to get the context of what it is. Plus, I don't think it hurts you to hear 17 verses of Scripture. Amen. Okay? So, let's do this, and then I've got just a few things from this that I'll teach you this weekend. So, uh, it just begins this way. The, Lord, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, uh, son of Amadi, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. And then these words just strike me so strange because most stories in the Bible don't go this direction. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and he headed for Tarshish. Uh, real quick, let me show you a map. Can they pull this up real fast? Because I think you'll find this interesting. I don't know if most people recognize um, what, what it is that he did. For those who just went to Israel with me, we start our first day in Joppa. Do you remember? It's the very first place we go to. We wake up in Tel Aviv. We're on the Mediterranean. Joppa's right there. It's an ancient seaport. Joppa in history, it's where the timbers came for Solomon to build the temple. Uh, it's, it's been there for a long, long period of time. This is where, um, uh, when, the, when the story begins, Jonah uh, is heading to Joppa to jump on a ship. So God told Jonah to go from here um, to Nineveh. Nineveh is where modern-day Turkey is. It's a journey of about 550 miles, and for Jonah to go there, he would have to go basically uh, to the northeast. That's how Jonah would get there, and that's what he should have done. His most direct and straight and obedient route would just be go that way. Here's what Jonah did. As soon as God told him to go that way, Jonah went 2,500 miles 
the opposite direction to what is now, Tar Tarshish is now modern-day Spain, is what it is. So he was told to go to Turkey, and he said, no, I'm going to go to Spain. Now, I just, the funny thing about this is, this is a man of God, a prophet who's seen the miraculous, and I'm not quite sure where his mind was or what he thought God was going to do. Like, he's going to get on a boat, and God's going to go see you. Miss, uh, you know, if there was ever such a thing as like, how long would it take a boat to go 2,500 miles in the ancient world? More than a couple of days. It's like God would have plenty of time to find Jonah if he was looking for him. So I just show you that to remember when you hear the story how it went. So go to the great city of Nineveh, preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord, headed to Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. So he's going to get on a ship and he's going to go um, far away. After paying the fare, now notice it begins to cost him money. After paying the fare... He went on board and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea. Such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God. And they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. Does anybody ever remember the other story of the guy who slept on the boat in the storm? It's just an interesting analogy. It's Jesus, but Jesus is righteous, not Jonah. So the captain went in and found him sleeping and said, Man, how can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, Tell us who is responsible for making all this trouble for us. What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What's your background? What's your country? What people are you from? He answered, I'm a Hebrew. I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them, and they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. Isn't that just a straightforward <laughs> clue? Uh, the sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, what should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that this is my fault, that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best. Look at that. The men wouldn't do what he said. They did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea was growing wilder and worse than even before. Then they cried out to who? So these were not, these were not Hebrews. These were not people who served. They're crying out to other gods, but this situation has called them to cry it out to Jehovah. So... Then they cry out to the Lord, Lord, uh, please do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. Could you imagine that happening instantly? So I saw a picture one time. It was VeggieTales. How many of you remember that right there? It's very, very deep theological teaching right here, okay? I think it was Larry. Uh, so they threw him. He was playing Jonah. They threw him overboard. And the boat that he was in instantly grew calm, but he's in a sea that's just going like, and you know that that's, it doesn't say that Jonah's lot got easy. It says that the boat suddenly was okay. It's just an interesting thought of what it might have looked like. Some of you are like, I don't care. Well, I do. So then they took Jonah, threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. Now the Lord provided a huge fish, a huge fish to swallow Jonah, 
And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. That's chapter one right there. So we'll go further into the book as we go through uh, the next few weeks. There's some really great lessons here and some great things to teach. But in this one, there are three things that just really stood out to me that I thought I would teach you. And the first one, let me just talk about the idea of running from God. Or at least running from your call. And most of us don't think that we do that. In fact, most people in this room think, hey man, I don't run from God at all. I love God. I've given myself to God. But some of you are here because you are running from God. And you're like, what am I even doing here tonight? You were nice enough just to say yes to somebody's invitation. And I would just say to you, maybe pay attention to what I'm about to say for the next couple of minutes, just for this reason right here, that you might think, man, I am so far away from God. I, am, I have done everything I can to get as far away from him as I possibly can be. And somehow God has designed a night, a weekend, an opportunity to talk about being away from him while you're trying to run away from him. And it may just be that God, just like he appointed a fish, has appointed a message or a time for you to hear something that you need to hear. So Jonah chapter 1 verse 3 says simply, God called Jonah, but Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. And after paying the fare, he went on board and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the presence of the Lord. So there are three things I see right here that I just think the wording of it's really significant and it makes sense. And when a person's running from the Lord or when a nation has fled from the presence of the Lord, I think these three things happen in a person's life or in the life of a nation or with a group of people in a marriage, a family. Anytime I think that you find people who flee from the presence of the Lord, there's a cause and an effect, an outcome. I promised the cardiologist, but I serve the Lord, so I'm standing right now. So you just, I can't sit. These three things in my mind are what you see. The first one is, the Bible says he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, and he went down to Joppa. I think the first thing you see whenever somebody runs from God, the first thing that happens is they go down. If you run from God, you're not going up, you go down. Just let me give it to you in a bigger picture first with our nation. I don't know where you stand in the political arena right now. I don't know where you're standing with our nation. This is not a political message. I'm not telling you who to vote for. I'm not representing each or one or the other. I just want to make this statement right here and see if you can agree with this. That we've done all that we can as a nation to tell God we want away from his presence. Now maybe you as an individual have not done that, but you'd have to agree that our nation has done that in the last 30 years, yes or no? And actually a little bit longer than that. It actually started in the 60s. We began to pass laws that said God is not wanted in our public institutions. And then we've done everything that we could do in recent times to say almost it's illegal to mix church and state. Yes or no? Have you ever heard that statement right there? With little understanding of where that ever came from or why it was said, was it actually said to protect the country or to protect the church? There's an interesting interpretation. That's not even what the message is about. My point simply would be this, that whenever a people, individual, or group flee from the presence of the Lord, they're going down. They're not going up. So I would ask you, what does our country look like? To, at least in your mind, are we more in unity or divided than ever before? How do you feel about it? There's not a knock against this country. I love this country. I think this is the greatest country on the face of the earth. Don't misunderstand me in this right here. And if this is like your first time here, give me at least a little bit of credit of like, I mean, does he have another side to what he's arguing about, right? I do. 
much more than a one-trick pony. But I would just say to you, hear what I'm saying, that when a nation does, when a person, when a group, when a, anybody that flees from the presence of the Lord is not going up, they go down. And you may not see it immediately, but you see it over the long term. Compare crime rates. Compare divorce rates. Just look at any meaningful statistic and ask yourself, are we getting better or worse? I think that any person, any, any, any entity that runs from God, that flees from God, that rejects God, the call of God, you're not going up, you're going down, and it may not show up immediately, but it'll show up in the long term. Let me give you the next one. I think that when you do that, here's the next thing that you'll see. People begin to make really bad, expensive decisions. So Jonah begins to spend money to get away from God. How expensive do you think it would be to pay money to get away from God? How much do you think it would cost you to flee from God's presence? Do you think you have enough money? Here's what David said. If I make my bed in hell, you're there. If I make it in heaven, you're there. The bottom of the ocean, you're there. The top of the mountains, you're there. Here was his conclusion. Where could I even flee from the presence of the Lord? That's pretty good thinking right there. But a person who thinks, I got to get away from God. I don't want anything to do with God. I think you see a pattern where people begin to just do foolish things and it gets very costly is what I'm saying. Very costly. You could look at the way money is looked at or spent or taken care of, wealth or the lack of it, a nation that at one time had a status and begins to loot. What is that? I want you just to think about this for a moment. What is a nation that had status up here at one time and then finds itself? What is that? Is it the natural course of events? Is it just history? Or could it be traced to something that's more definitive? A nation that says no to God finds itself going down and it gets very expensive. Just consider. You can decide what you want. How about this? Then I think it says right here, he went on board and sailed for Tarshish to flee the presence of the Lord. I think the last thing that you'll see is just simply futile thinking. It's futile to think you could flee from the presence of the Lord. It's just absolutely futile to think that you could run away, that I could do something to get away from God's presence. God is everywhere. He is all the time. And here's the bottom line. God loves you so much, man. It's okay to not be okay, but God loves you enough they won't leave you that way. Amen. So even if you're fleeing from the presence of the Lord, here's what I think God does. He lets you think, okay, you're getting away, but I think his arms just kind of reach out in a big circle around you, and eventually you're going to smash right back into him. He's going to have his way. Where could you flee from the presence of the Lord? But it's futile. You begin to think, I can do this. I can handle this. I can take this on. Adam and Eve thought that way. Their very first reaction when their eyes were open to the presence of the Lord was they began to hide. Can you really hide from God? They began to use fig leaves to cover up from God. It's funny. Because I've said for years, I think the number one thing that the church needs renewal in is the way that they think about God. We sit here tonight, we think we got it together. But how much are you comfortable in the presence of God? How much do you pursue? How much do you feel like he really loves you? I was laying on a table two weeks ago. I had this really funny argument in my head. Right before they put a garden hose up my <laughs> arm to get into my heart. <laughs> when it hurts so bad and 
I wasn't sure what was going to happen and nobody was in there with me. And I, I said to the assistant for the cardiologist, I said, hey man, pray for me. And the cardiologist said, he's busy right now. <laughs> Which is okay. She's like, you're right. I'll pray for me. You keep going. <laughs> so I had this really quick conversation with the Lord and this is what I said to him. Um, so I don't want to die right now. But if I do die, I'm okay, right? Where'd that right come from? <laughs> Just, hey, rhetorical, don't answer out loud. Why, why would you go to heaven? All of a sudden, I was thinking about, listen, the only reason we go to heaven is God's grace. It's the work that Jesus did, right? Our job's not to get ourselves to heaven. It's to bring heaven to earth. Jesus did the work for us to go to heaven. If you believe that and you trust that, then God gives that to you. But I laid on that table and I thought to myself, God, forgive me my sins. Oh, God, I'm trying to think of all the things I need to confess. God, forgive me for this. Forgive me for that. And I thought, why are you having this conversation right now? I told the Lord, wait a minute. I'm ready because of Jesus. So if it's my time, I don't want to go now. But if it's my time, I'm not saying I want to go right now. But if it's my time... <laughs> funny <laughs> then God I'm okay I know I can stand before you and I'll be okay but I feel like I got a lot of things left to do see the only reason I just throw this out to you I'm a pastor and I do this for my life and I've done it for 30 years and I love God with everything and I teach grace every weekend but it's funny how all of a sudden when confronted with this may be it right here how I worried about man am I going to be okay when I stand before God and I should never have to worry that's the very work of Jesus that he's done for me that I would never have to worry when I stood before. But where did that come from? Because I think, listen, I think sometimes we don't know what we think about and the way that we think about. And we can get into funny places with the Lord where we think, hey, I, let's call it fig leaf religion. So we put things up between us and God so that we'll be acceptable in his presence. That's what Adam and Eve did, didn't they? Before they were who they were, God loved them, and that's the reason he created them in the first place. Yes? No? And the very work of Jesus is to restore, to put us back. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. God's given us the ministry of reconciliation to bring us back to when we were consiled with God, which was the original purpose of... Am I making any sense? So he made us to be in this great relationship with him, and when we love him and believe that, and I mean, it's just a done deal, but it's funny how... We put things up before us so that we're pleasing to God. And we don't even realize that we're doing it. Go to church or we pray. We read or we give. Or we love or we're kind. Or we give a right answer. And it's all good. But why do you do it? We're not always aware of what our motives. I don't even know if you hear what I'm saying right now. Just kind of had this weird conversation of why would I even have to worry about that right this second? And it was because I was thinking funny about what would make me righteous when I stand before God. I would just say to you, any time, any time the enemy can wreak any havoc in your life, man, the thing he wants to attack is that relationship with God. He just wants you always in a position of just trying to work harder, do better. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get my act together. We love him. Because he first loved us. On your worst day, 
at your worst moment, he absolutely was passionately in love with you. And guess what? After you met him and you got cleaned up, he doesn't love you any more than he did when you were rotten. He never changes. It's our own consciences that can condemn us and mess with us. and It becomes futile thinking. Man, if anything, sometimes we can think, ah, it's that person who's in rebellion that's running from God. Any thought that we have that does not see God as good and righteous and honorable towards us is futile thinking. I don't know if you hear what I'm saying. Let me just get done with this. So just running from God. The second one just simply is this. Let me talk about divine storms real quick. Divine storms. Not every storm is divine. There's one on the East Coast right now that is not divine in any way, shape, or form. It's a storm. It's a terrible storm. If you've never been through a hurricane, you don't know. Jonah chapter 1, 4 and 5 just says this. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea. Who sent the wind? The Lord sent a great wind on the sea and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid and cried out to his own God. They threw the cargo into the sea to lighten up the ship, hoping that that would work. Let me just real quickly, I'll just do this real fast. Um, I think there's a real misunderstanding between what God's mercy is and what God's judgment is. And that, wouldn't you think that would be such a clear-cut issue? God's mercy and God's judgment. But just real quick, let me, let, me, let me hit it for your understanding and so you would get this. Um, the rest of the sailors on that boat would have looked at that storm and thought, this is God's judgment towards Jonah. Yes or no? It's exactly what they would have thought. This man has disobeyed God. This is God's judgment. That's what they were even saying in effect. What have you done? But the truth of the matter is, this isn't God's judgment against Jonah. And here's why I know that. Because if God wanted to judge Jonah, we would not even have the book of Jonah to read about today. Jonah would have died in the Mediterranean about 2,700 years ago. If God wants to get you, friend, remember this. If you don't remember anything else. If you think God's out to get you, let me just, if God wants to get you, you are not here to tell us that God is trying to get you. You're like a little grease spot with a sign that points, God got him right here on this day and at this time. This was not God's judgment in Jonah's life in any way, shape, or form. God was not judging Jonah. God is not so, you know, like, I can't believe this guy's doing this to me. God's not freaked out by our stuff. He's a lot more secure than you give him credit for. God just looked at the situation and simply said, this isn't good for Jonah, and this isn't good for Nineveh, and this is not good for what I want. And so I've got to send a wind right now to get Jonah's attention. So it's not judgment. In fact, it was God's mercy. Ask the people in Nineveh if it was God's judgment or mercy that sent that storm. What would they'd say mercy, wouldn't they? They lived. Now the sailors on the ship would look at it and say, oh, this has to be God's judgment. So there's always an argument about what's God's judgment and what's God's mercy. And some people even misunderstand how that works in their lives. Every time something bad happens, they think that God did it to them. God is not bad. God doesn't give you cancer to teach you a lesson. And if you believe that, here's the problem theologically that you would have. Jesus healed everybody. 
So he would be working in opposition to the Father. And this is what Jesus said. People that work against each other, it's called a house divided and it can't stand. They have to work together, yes or no. So if God's putting sickness on people, then Jesus would be undoing what God did if he's healing people. So we misunderstand or appropriate what it's all about. I'm just pointing something out real quickly. And I would just simply say this, that we look at acts sometimes and we say to ourselves, God is angry. God is getting that person. God, it is God's mercy that could allow a nation to have really bad choices in order to get a nation to cry out for God. I would just simply state to you one more time, hear what I'm going to say. We do not have a political problem in our nation. We have a spiritual problem in our nation today, and it manifests itself in our politics. Look at me real quick. You think either of those politicians are your savior? You've made a terrible mistake. Neither of them are your savior. That doesn't mean that one's not better than the other or worse. That's not what I'm saying. But you make a terrible mistake if you think that that's where our salvation lies at. And sometimes things that people go, that's God's judgment. What if it was actually God trying to say, hey, I'm going to give you a little bit of what you want so that you will actually cry out to me and realize I'm what you need. Do you ever think about that? I mean, could it, could it be bigger than the picture we see on the 5 o'clock news? Could, I mean, could it? Just, just maybe. And that's not to say that you're not right to be involved in politics and to think about it and you better vote. Get your fanny out there and vote. But hear me on this issue, man. When our two choices are who we don't want to get in there. Are you okay? Hey, I almost had a heart attack. I can say what I want to. So I did have a heart attack, so I'm going to say what I want to say. The other thing I can do is go, oh, it hurt. Uh, no. Come on, let me have fun. I told Chris it's gallows humor. You got to laugh about it. She's like, don't, don't do that. Don't do that. I know, I'm sorry. All right, I won't. I won't do it. I'm sitting back down. Did you notice? I'm sitting right back. It's not, it's not even a political statement as much as I'm trying to just get you to see that could, could there be a higher arcing effect at work that could cause a people to say we're sick of our own way we've lost our own way as Chronicles says if my people which are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and cry out to me to heal their land I will hear from heaven but what makes people cry out and isn't it funny, it takes really serious things before we ever think, I need to cry out. It takes almost sometimes life and death to make us realize, I need help. Romans 2.4, just New Testament to back up what I'm saying. Paul just brings this thought into the theology of the Roman church. And, he, and he, he just, it's like a little bomb that explodes a month. Here's what he says. God's kindness leads you to repentance. And I, here's the only reason I say that. Most people think it's God's judgment that brings people to repentance. And they actually pray for God's judgment. 
but it's the mercy of God that leads a person. It's the mercy of God that reaches out to us and stops us. It's the mercy of God that doesn't let us just keep going our own way, doing our own thing time after. It's the mercy of God ultimately. Do you believe that? It's the mercy of God that causes a parent to say to a child, stop that. Don't do that anymore. You're hurting yourself. I just thought I would throw this one out. When I wrote down God's mercy, God's judgment, there were two things I saw here real quick. Sometimes when we're running from God and doing our own thing and divine storms end up in our lives and we don't know why they're there, the worst thing about them is here's, here's what we say today out loud. As long as it doesn't hurt anybody else, it's okay. We think we pass laws based on that thought. As long as this doesn't hurt somebody, it's okay. So I'm going to make another statement that maybe is contrary to that. And here's what I would say. All of your decisions affect somebody around you. It's never just about you, man. That's selfish thinking. That's selfish thinking. All of our decisions affect... Jonah's decision to get on that boat affected those sailors that were on it. Yes or no? They found themselves affected by... They didn't do a thing. They went to work. He made their workplace miserable. It's a double entendre. Think about when I... His decisions impact everyone around you. Sometimes storms have one-way stickers on them, meaning God's not doing this to get you to come back to the port. God may let it have its effect in your life because ultimately with Jonah, here's what happened. Once in the belly of the fish, not a whale, by the way. Never says whale. Once in the belly of the fish, here's what the Bible says. He began to cry out to God. Why did it take Jonah to be in that position before he cried out to God? So why does it take us to have to be flat on our back sometimes to cry out to God? Why does our marriage have to be in trouble before we cry out to God? Why do our finances have to get messed up before we cry out to God? Why do our children sometimes get eaten up, man, before we realize this is not just something going on in culture. This is a spiritual war that's happening right now. Do you hear what I'm saying? So why? Why? Maybe that's three. Let's talk to you about the big toolbox real quick and I'll close my message. The end of the chapter, verse 17, it just simply said, once they threw him into the water, the Lord provided. I love that word provided right there. Here are three other words that from the Hebrew, they mean the exact same thing. So you might want to write them down. So the word provided means appointed, means created, and also means assigned. So it could read this way. The Lord appointed a huge fish. The Lord created a huge fish. The Lord assigned a huge fish to swallow Jonah. I don't care how you write it. The point is simply this. God has a huge toolbox to do what he wants to do in our lives. 
Man, he can use anything. Even what the devil intended for evil, God can make for good in your life to save a lot of people. This is all through the Bible. This is from the beginning in Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation in the end. Everything in between screams that God, look, God can play poker with a pair of twos and win. God can do anything. He is all-powerful. He is almighty. This is an understatement to even try to put it in the words of English. But here just simply would be, maybe you're in that place, man, where you are away from God. You have a terrible storm going in your life. You're like, why is this happening to me? Why, 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 why? Rather than think God's out to get you. Because again, if he wanted to get you, he'd get you. You couldn't run fast enough or far enough. You don't have enough money. There's just simply not, you can't go into the witness protection program and get away. Change your name 50 times. He knows who you are. And you may not be okay right now, and that's okay. But God loves you enough not to leave you that way, and this is why, hear me. There's an Old Testament scripture I was reading this week. And I just had a lot of time to read my Bible. <laughs> a lot of downtime. So rather than sit there and be mad at God, or even condemn myself, I just decided I'm going to make the most of the situation I'm in right now. I don't often get a stop. So I'm going to fill this time. So I'm reading about Solomon building the temple. And there's this real, I mean, you talk about a random, out there, could read it a thousand times and never see it. 1 Kings 6, 7. And it's just given the details of how they built the temple. And so this is just the way that it reads. In building the temple, only the blocks or the stones dressed at the quarry were used. No hammer, chisel, or any other iron tool was heard at the temple site while it was being built. So here's just simply what it means. Rather than cut the stone and then bring it to the temple and then bang on it and make it fit, they did all the dressing at the quarry because once it came together, all it was supposed to do was fit together to make this beautiful thing. And so I want you to hear this because this is way more than a story about a temple. It's really about us and it's a secret and here's what God is saying. Things in your life right now may be really noisy and really painful and you're in this place where it's just being chipped and chipped and chipped, here's God's reason. He's not out to get you. And he's not even mad at you. And he's not judging you. Here's his purpose in the whole thing. Man, your life is supposed to fit together in this beautiful thing that he's planned before eternity that he's going to put on display. That's what the book of Ephesians says. And he's doing all the work outside so that when he brings you together on the inside, there's not supposed to be anything except that it just all comes together. And right now, you may look at it and think to yourself, it's such a mess. God can take anything. Even what was meant for evil, God can turn it for good. And when you're in the quarry, all you hear is just... When he brings together in the place that you're supposed to be, all you hear is the praise from all the stuff that's behind you now. It's all behind you. 
Now you could look at that think maybe that means when I get to heaven, but I think it means when he gets done with you, what he's trying to do. Your life's supposed to go on display so that people see how good God is. We are his handiwork put on display to talk about how good God is. So even if you're like right in the middle of it right now and you're like, man, I just don't get this and I don't know the way out of it and there doesn't seem to even be any answers from where I'm at. I think I would just say to you simply, listen, the quicker you surrender, the better off you're going to be. Bow your knee. Tell God, here you are. Quit going the other way. The only other thing I heard when I wrote this message, and I just, it's the last thing that I'll say. I wrote down in that first part, running from God or God's call. And when I wrote that, actually several weeks ago, I felt like the Holy Spirit wanted me to say that there might be someone who hears that message and thinks to yourself, it's too late for me. I've gone too far. Maybe it would have worked 20 years ago. Maybe it would have worked several decisions ago. Maybe it would have worked several marriages ago. Maybe it would have worked several bankruptcies ago. But it won't work now, Pastor. And I felt like this is what the Lord told me to say. It's never too late. And maybe you don't see how. And maybe you're not 20 years old. But I know the God who can assign a fish to do what he wants it to do in any space and time. And if he can do it with a fish, my friend, he can do anything he wants to do in your life if you'll just tell him, here I am. Here I am. And maybe that sounds to you, it's just oversimplistic. Maybe it was meant to be oversimplistic. Maybe it wasn't meant for you to do anything except, God, here I am. Here I am. Maybe you say it's just too good to be true. It is. And yet, that's the deal. It's too good to be true. But it's true. Lord, Thank you for letting me teach again. I'm very, very lucky. But I know the right word. I'm very, very blessed. And I just want to publicly say, God, how grateful I am to be sitting here right now doing this. How thankful I am, God, to be in front of your people again and able to teach. And God, I just ask right now that anything that I say or anything that I do, Lord, if, it's, if it does anything except show off Jesus, I pray that you just knock that down and hide it behind him and just let everything point to him right now. I know there are people, Lord, that hear this message and they'll think to themselves, Pastor, I'm just so far gone. I see you trying so hard, but John, don't waste your time. I'm just too far gone. Oh, man. You're the very reason Jesus came to the earth. 
All of us are too far gone unless God gets a hold of us. I don't know what the situation, the relationship, the place is. Man, I just, I hold this entire message and this whole weekend for just a second. I want to encourage you, if you're in that place and you just feel like, I'm just too far gone. God actually designed this weekend, part of it, to speak to you. Consider my words. And for the rest of us, man, who wrestle with all the different things that I talked about. Maybe you found a place in the message where you're like, I see that. Or I hear that, Pastor. Or I identify with that. I pray the Holy Spirit would find a way to be able to teach you in that and to help you in that, to speak to you in that. I pray that as you just contemplate what God has for you and for your life, even if you're like, it just seems too good to be true. That's it's true. In this world, it's true good to be true. That's why God enters this world. To bring us something that's too good to be true just in and of itself in this world. It's not from this world. It's from eternity. And he offers you his life and his mercy and his grace. And even if you said, I've prayed that a hundred times, there's anything, anything that separates you from the Father. Man, he wants to just do away with that. Draw you into his presence and draw you into his love and draw you into life. He loves you so much. So much that he even designed a message to try to get you to realize how much he loves you. And I just bless the work of the Lord at all of our campuses right now. All the things God's doing, all that he wants to do. And I just pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.